This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Indecisive, How to Make Better Choices in Life and Work. Best-selling authors Chip Heath and Dan Heath argue that humans don't have a particularly strong track record of making good choices, whether it's about our careers, business matters, or our personal lives. Knowledge at Wharton recently had an opportunity to talk with Chip about how widening your options, reality testing your assumptions, attaining distance before deciding, and preparing to be wrong can make all the difference. Chip, thank you for joining Knowledge of Wharton to discuss your new book, Decisive, co-authored with Dan Heath. Thank you for having me. Many of us think we're being analytical and thoughtful when we make decisions, yet the book argues we're far from rational and frequently set ourselves up to make poor decisions. Where are we going wrong? Well, I think there's a whole literature, actually, in psychology that has emerged over the last 30 years that has talked about various ways that we go wrong. So... One way that we go wrong, for example, is what psychologists call confirmation bias, that we'll start out with a, an idea about what's going to happen in a situation. So I, I really like this job candidate, or I really think this merger is a good idea. And we collect information, but we have our thumbs on the scale. And, and so if we think we're going to like the job candidate or the merger, we, we collect information in a way that biases in subtle and not-so-subtle ways the conclusion towards that initial reaction. And so... That's just one example of probably 30 different things that psychologists have discovered that creep in as flaws in decision processes. And what we tried to do in Decisive is to think about, well, how would we start going about fixing some of these problems? Right. And one of the ways that you really kind of open up the process is you break down the steps in the decision-making process and expose um, specifically where those um, decisions break down. What are those uh those four um, steps involved in the decision, and, and where specifically does the decision-making process break down? So we talk about four steps, and we probably won't have time to cover them all in a short podcast, but, you know, the first step of the process is, is widening your options. That Psychologists have found that very often when we're considering a decision, we're essentially thinking thumbs up, thumbs down on one alternative. So I have a problem with somebody in my office, uh, a subordinate, and I'm thinking about, well, should I fire the person or not? And very often it's easy for our mind to get locked into to one alternative when we should be considering, well, could we move them to a different assignment? Could we get them some mentoring? Could we? There are lots of things that we should be considering, but our minds tend to focus on one. So we talk about widening your options. We talk about reality testing our ideas. So confirmation bias that we mentioned earlier gets in the way of collecting information uh, and getting at the reality of the situation. And then we talk about two other processes. One is, at the moment that we're choosing, it helps us to attain some distance on the choice and kind of take a broader perspective because very often we get locked into the weeds of a decision and find it agonizing to make a choice between two good alternatives. But what we're not thinking about necessarily is, is the broader picture of where we want to go as an individual or where we want our company to go uh, as a business person. And and so we've got some tools for that. And then finally, we talk about even after we've made a decision, there are things that we can do to, to take out little forms of insurance so that if something goes bad, we're going to be more prepared for that. And so we talk about preparing to be wrong, that our view of the future 
is not always perfect. And so if it's not always perfect, then we might as well have contingency plans. And we don't always have those because we get overconfident about our, our picture of the future. Can you tell us more um, in terms of widening your options about how some organizations are using multi-tracking as a solution to, uh, and, and also how um, others can apply this concept without adding on a hefty price tag? Yeah, so multi-tracking essentially says that we do better if we consider two or three alternatives at the same time. And so there was a study in Silicon Valley by Kathy Eisenhart at Stanford University, and she found that the Silicon Valley firms that were the quickest to respond in to strategic changes, respond with a strategy that addressed the changes in their industry, were firms that top leaders considered multiple alternatives at the same time. And by considering two or three things at once, by multi-tracking, you're in a better shape than if you consider one alternative, and then if that one fails, you go into the next one, the next one. In both cases, you might consider three alternatives, but if you're doing it at the same time, you get a better sense of the lay of the land, of the dimensions on which alternatives vary. You're more likely to, to not escalate commitment in response to a bad, a bad decision, you know, throwing more time and money after a, a failing project, because you go with your second alternative that you're considering at the same time. And, and so this notion of, you know, there's a huge, strong trade-off between considering more and the cost turns out to be less well supported by the research than we might have expected that you're actually faster, Kathy Eisenhart says in her data, if you're considering multiple options because you don't get locked into bad courses of action. Another tactic you recommend is finding someone who's solved your problem already. Um, can you give us an example of, uh, of how one would approach that? Yeah, that's one of the things that Dan and I found most useful is Anytime we confront a problem, we're probably not the first people in humanity to ever deal with that problem. And yet, very often we feel it's incumbent on us to, to come up with our own solutions to the, the problem. So, you know, a, a junior high school principal that's trying to get kids through the lunch line faster so that they have more time to actually get out and play and recess and, and work out their bodies, you know, the junior high school principal has a number of people that he can consult. He could consult other junior high school principals about the problem, and that's what we typically do is we look to other people who are very much like us. But what what the principal may not have thought about is there may be a lot of business owners that have problems with queuing in their restaurants or their um, their stores, and he might be able to learn from them. He might be able to learn from uh, sports stadiums and looking at the design principles of those. And so back to the widening your options idea, very often we get locked into a fairly narrow set of people and ideas that we consult. We consult people in our, in our company, on our floor, as opposed to consulting people in the broader industry or even consulting people in other industries that face similar problems. That's very helpful. For many, I think it's, um, it's challenging to think of considering the very opposite of uh, the assumptions um, or the decision that you want to approach, w what would be involved in considering the opposite, and, and what, what, what are the gains? So this, this addresses the point about reality testing our assumptions. So confirmation bias creeps in and says, you know, we really like this person that we're interviewing, and, and our tendency is to look for the positive aspects of their resume or their experiences or the strengths that they would bring to the organization. But it's also worthwhile when we're hiring somebody to think, why would this person not be the right fit for the job? Why would they not have the right skills? 
and very often that highlights some information that we wouldn't have thought about otherwise. And so the basic principle of considering the opposite says that in a world where we're plagued with confirmation bias, very often we will have to consciously think to ourselves, you know, I really like this this idea for a merger. Um, you know, the company seems really good. It seems like a really good fit. But consciously forcing ourselves to ask, why would this not be a good merger? You know, so when Daimler and Chrysler, there were lots of reasons that merger should have worked. You know, the great engineering of uh, Mercedes and the, the marketing savvy of Chrysler. But what, what they should have asked is, why would this merger not work? And it turns out when you get the obsessive engineers of Daimler and the, the wild, innovative marketers of Chrysler, they don't always get along very well. And I think if they had asked the disconfirming questions earlier, they would have been in a better position to manage that merger if they decided to do it, or maybe to not do the merger in the first place. You also recommend getting some distance before deciding. What if that's not possible? So, so I think it's almost always possible to get some distance. I mean, when we're choosing between two options, you know, the kind of advice that we get is, well, why don't you sleep on it? And essentially that's a way for us to get some mental distance from an agonizing struggle that we may be having between, you know, should we purchase this or that, or should we do this career option as opposed to that career option. So getting distance could be as simple as, you know, business writer Susie Welch has a procedure she calls 10-10-10. Think about this decision 10 minutes from now, 10 months from now, and 10 years from now. What are the implications at those three different time scales? And what's brilliant about that is when we get lost in the weeds of a decision, you know, we, we may have a problem with someone on our team who's not contributing a lot. And 10 minutes from now, that seems like an awful conversation to have. We dread those conversations. But, you know, 10 months from now, it, it would be really nice to have this resolved. Uh, and maybe that other person will decide to move on to something else. But in either case, they're going to be a better functioning move, member of the team or they're going to be off on some other task. And 10 years from now, you know, none of this may matter. All of us will be at a different part of their career. So by looking at those different time scales, by getting some mental temporal distance from the agony that we're facing, we're more likely to have the difficult conversation. We're more likely to make the right choice in that situation. And for a final question, even with the best of uh, decision-making processes, how can business leaders prepare for the inevitable wrong decision? So preparing to be wrong is just admitting with some humility that we, we don't have the future nailed. So we often have a very precise estimate of what the future is going to bring. But, you know, there are studies of doctors that say that when a doctor expresses complete certainty that a diagnosis is correct, they could be wrong up to 40% of the time. And so if even a well-trained professional making a decision in their area is wrong a substantial portion of the time, then maybe we ought to take out some some insurance on that. So in the case of the medical decision, we would get a second opinion. In the case of a, of a business decision where we're introducing a new product, make a decision up front to set a tripwire and say, you know, if, we're, if we don't achieve a market penetration of at least 7% in this test market, we want to we reevaluate whether this is the right product. We want to reevaluate whether we've got the right, uh, the right formulation of the product, maybe abandon the product in the first place. But what we don't want to get into a situation is we, we think it's going to be good, but we kind of consciously, uh, unconsciously, actually, 
inch our way into a situation where we're throwing good money after bad because we haven't considered the possibility that things might not go as well as we thought. Those are great insights. Chip, thank you for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton today. Thanks for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.